everybody. Um, welcome back. This is uh, part two of the Michelle Fall uh, interview. Uh, that was better uh, interview. Hello. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Good. You want to get a little closer to the microphone? I so, will get a little oh, closer to the microphone. You are all up in my ears. <laughs> um, first of all, you're, you're, you're a first. I am. You're the first ever return guest. Woohoo. How's that, I, how's that feel? Needed some more of me, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't we all? <laughs> Who couldn't use enough Michelle Thaller? Um, how's that feel? You feel like you're 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 breaking barriers now? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I was thinking about that in the car on the way here, and I was like, "Have you? What? I'm sure you have been the first woman to do something." You know, there actually have, there's a long history of women in astronomy. Yes. So while I did not have a lot of uh, women professors or, you know, women direct mentors, I mean, it, it goes all the way back to people, uh, I mean, as far as modern astronomy, people like uh, Henrietta Leavitt and Annie Jump Cannon, people that were working at Harvard at the turn of the century in the 1920s. So it, I, I certainly wasn't the first woman astronomer. Um, uh, I think I was probably the first person from my high school to go to the Ivy League. <laughs> That's good. But, uh, you know, it... Uh, Shout out to... Waukesha South High School. Waukesha South. Where, where is that? <laughs> where the hell is Waukesha? <laughs> you could be the first uh, anything from Waukesha yeah, High School. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, actually, um, so, so Waukesha South, uh, it's, the high school is in Waukesha, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of Milwaukee. And I, actually, no, I think there was. There was one other guy that went to Harvard before me. I think I remember that. But, uh, um, you know, I... It's not so much for me about being first, but 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 putting a real kind of human spin on things. Yeah. I think that, you know, in my case, breaking down barriers and being sort of an innovator, um, people seem to just. How much swearing is it? You can swear all you, you don't have to even get away from the microphone to ask me if you can swear. People just seem to go apeshit when when they realize that the scientist is this this real whole flawed, humble kind of lost person. And I think that, you know, the, the response I've gotten, which, which, which really surprises the hell out of me, you know, I mean, I, I was sort of this run of the mill scientist and I end up on some TV shows just because they don't know who else to put on them. And I'm good at explaining things, but I, I think the thing that people really seem to be, be getting from me is this sense of we're all in this together, you know, where we're all, there's nobody above you. Scientists are not up on some pedestal. Right. You know, there's nothing about this that you can't do. I think that's my, if I'm proud of anything of being kind of a first, I think that I've got a, a certain unique style of yeah. breaking down that barrier. You leveled the playing field. I try to. Yeah. It, how, you know, how can we contribute? Right. Cause I think when you look at the universe as a whole and like you say, like how, how you can break it down, we're all in this together, especially when you look at the planet falling apart, like all the dire things that we could focus on all day, every day, especially scrolling through a Facebook feed. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, or do you even get involved in saying, Hey, Joe or Jane, like this is how you also can contribute and, you know, essentially kind of do what I do. Reaching the kids, right? I mean, I, I think that the thing that we need to realize is that we are not going to be any type of, of world leader. This country is not going to have a, you know, a future unless we manage to involve all of these people we're throwing away right now, right? I mean, I mean, all of these kids in underserved populations and lower economic brackets that, that honestly don't have access to a decent education. And, you know, getting them involved early in something like coding as a form of play, you know, I mean, there's a lot of entrepreneurs, I mean, just I mean, go out and, and, and deliberately target these populations, get them coding, get them up, get them working in today's technological environment. You know, I, I think that when people ask, you know, what should I do? That there's all of this human potential around us that we're just throwing away right now. And, and we, we can't continue to do that. Yeah, there was a, um, 
Rebecca Cantar is a woman who's on the guest or a guest on the show. Mm-hmm. She, she was on the guest. <laughs> She's a too. woman who's a guest. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, she was the first. No, uh, she she made a great point. Is like, what's the what's the cost of us missing an Elon Musk? Just one every year, right? Right, because there is one. There's some five year old, seven, eleven year old kid who exhibits those or even you know the same characteristics you had as a kid or or any of us but you know those high functioning individuals that we celebrate like there are a ton of those that we miss every year and there's a lot of other individuals there's um uh walter o'brien who was another guest in the show and the show scorpion is based on his real life and you know he started an organization almost like x-men to spot geniuses right and like how do you go and find them um and bring them in into you know uh, the the areas of need that we have and the areas of need that they have from a social perspective and also this this, this idea that might be kind of a false one that there are that many geniuses out there right i mean i mean what does that mean that word is kind of loaded with a lot of cultural crap on top of it you know the, the fact that you know people think you need to be a genius to do in some cases, coding or a genius to be an astrophysicist or a genius to be an artist or any of that. I think we need to break that down. I mean, mm. there will always be people who are, who are truly exceptional at something. It's just a, a natural. But this is one of the things that I, I get really up on my high horse with science that you know, people seem to think that you either have it or you don't. And there's no way you can learn this enough to be good at it, enough to be a scientist. And they wouldn't say that about, you know, they would never say it, it, it's impossible for you to ever learn Spanish, right? I mean, there are some people who have a huge talent at languages. They, they come, come quickly. Si. You can't learn Spanish? No. Oui. Just, I, I mean, yes. <laughs> but, I mean, every, everybody everybody in Los Angeles should probably know a little Spanish, right? Everybody should be at least somewhat conversant in it to be part of the culture. And we don't treat that the same way as science. You know, the idea that, oh my God, I, I, I'm nowhere near smart enough to even get interested in science or right. get a little bit involved in science. I mean, you don't need to go all the way and get a doctorate, but even so, the, the, the math and the physics didn't come naturally to me. I had to really, really ram my head through that. And if you really wanted to become fluent in Spanish, guess what? You can, you know, just right. practice, you know, go to Spain and Mexico. And- why, why is that though? And I'm just, I'm not asking you directly, but I'm just kind of thinking about it rhetorically. Like, why is there such a stigma that that's for them mm-hmm. right? And, and not for me? Um, and I don't know what the answer is, but, or have you had a chance to even to break that down in your own thing? Like, why is there the, the disconnect? What is it that uh, some, some, somebody looks at your work and your, your life and goes like, wow. It's a question for, for any cultural stereotype, right? I mean, you can ask, you know, I, I, I hate reading books on diversity, like, you know, NASA very well-meaningly will bring in a diversity specialist and they will sit me, sit a whole room of people down. And they'll talk about how, you know, when you want to work with women, you need to be much more gentle and non-confrontational and more supportive. And women don't like, you know, direct challenges. And, and, and I'm, a, I'm a freaking aggressive scientist. And I'm sitting back there going, what that the hell? That sounds ridiculous, though. You know? it's, just like, and, it, it's, I mean, it's always some white guy up there talking yeah. about, you know, what women need in order to feel comfortable in a workplace. You know, or, or, or think about the, the layers of stereotypes on African-Americans or, or, you know, Latinos or whoever. And it's the same thing with scientists. I mean, in the case of science... I think what we're looking at is the people who used to do science back in the 18th century and Victorian era times were people who had the money to be able to, to set up these sort of useless experiments. They weren't working the fields. They, you know, they, they, they weren't you know, right. going out and fishing in boats and they tended to be these, these, these sons of rich families that people didn't know what to do with. You know, the, the oldest son was off running the estate. What do you do with the younger one? Well, Hey, he wants to go off on a boat and look at, you know, finches in Antarctica or whatever. I mean, I mean whatever. I think that culturally it, this job was done 
by these 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 cosseted, protected, rich white men. And they had, you know, you could say whether we know whether they're on the autism spectrum or not. I mean, they tended to be not very social. They tended to be right. sort of you know, distancing themselves from the rest of society. It had nothing to do with the subject material, right? The universe does not care, you know, what sort of mind is studying it. So, you know, I think it was, it was a cultural artifact of, of who was doing science for the last couple hundred years. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think, you know, as we progress, it's like geeks are the new rock stars. There's a lot of thinking and Absolutely. exploration in that area, you know, shout out to like Brent Bushnell and, you know, the two bit circuses of the world yeah. that are like, they're cool individuals and they're also making science and technology and engineering like cool and, and not like the pocket protector. That's for, you know, that's for those people. So but uh, it's also interesting that people are beginning to accept being geeky as a way of being cool. You know, I, right. I, I have some pretty diverse friends yeah, I mean, tonight I'm going to be having uh, dinner with my friend who is a, as a professional model, right? So you guys are going to eat a sweet potato. We're going to eat a sweet potato. Yes, that Brandon is a shout out to you and sweet potato night. He looks forward to this every every uh, uh, every week. Um, for Valentine's Day this year, he actually had ice cream with me, and he was looking forward to that for months. He was like, <laughs> "Oh my God, ice cream's coming up! I get to have some ice cream." Um, you know, no, no peace. I mean, no, no judgment about how you want to live your life. No, but I, but you know, I, I've sort of asked him. It's like, why do you want to hang around me? And he's like, "You're so geeky, cool. I mean, you, you're you're really smart. You have." this 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 geeky vibe going and and in his culture even you know that's been defined as something as a kind of cool a flavor of cool right and i think that's a change i think this you know but you know i'm a fitness model but you're geeky cool i mean that that's a neat thing yeah yeah no and it, it i mean we i think when you look at what technology and digital media have allowed us to do it, you're experiencing mashup culture Right. So when you're thinking about, hey, these two communities don't typically talk to each other, or these this type of person and that type of person or this brand and that brand, it's because we can just there's these multiple points of discovery. And suddenly I'm a multi hyphenated person because, I, yeah, I do like finches in and our <laughs> right? um, and and sweet potatoes. There you go. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting. We, you know, we have citizen science project projects at NASA where, where people interact with the, the raw data and they help us answer a question that is honestly scientifically interesting to us. You know, for example, we have people going through, you know, thousands and, and in fact millions of images of tiny little galaxies that the Hubble Space Telescope took. And all we need them to do is identify the rough shape of the galaxy. Is it like a spiral or is it like more of a blob? And I mean, that's really easy to do. It is in this nice, you know, it's this very nice web setup. And uh, we actually have, have discovered huge amounts of interesting things based on the statistics of the galaxies and how the galaxies change over time in the universe. And so, these people are helping us make original decisions that actually end up in published scientific papers. And you think, okay, now who would do this? Who would sit at a computer at night and help NASA identify the shapes of galaxies? And you think, oh yeah, they're all like 15 year old isolated white guys. And if you do the statistics they're for one thing, they're mostly women. They're mostly women in their late thirties to, to mid forties that do this. Right. And they're, they're from a surprisingly diverse socioeconomic background. So the, the thing that really kind of fascinates me is that people from a from very, very diverse backgrounds seem to want to participate in science. Well, it's like we were talking earlier, you know, LAUSD, which is not the best school system in the country, but um, they are opening up their first all girl school mm -hmm. and it is the first STEM school. So it's an all girl STEM academy. Shout out to Gala, uh, the Girls Academic Leadership Academy. And there's all these statistics that support exactly what you said, where, you know, not only, yes, there are 
you know, the majority of people interacting with that type of content are, are girls um, or women, but also um, the disconnect in the traditional like co-ed classroom is that boys tend to dominate and which means girls are less likely to raise their hand. And there's just like, there's a social shutdown. So even if I am interested, I don't get called or picked on, um, which leads me to think about, we talked a little bit about your childhood before, but in the classroom, what kind of student were you? I was one of those people that was always up at the front of the classroom with my hand up. In fact, I had very good natured teachers. This was, they didn't mean to be bad. They, they, at some point they basically just told me to put my hand down. And if nobody else knew the answer to the question, then they let me give the answer. So I, I was a bit insufferable that way. The interesting exception to that, and you're just going to freak you out Uh-oh. is in my math and science classes where I was, I was silent. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was all over the place in history and language arts and, and, you know, and, and actually the, uh, the visual arts. I mean, I love painting and I did music and, I, there was something about the math and science classes that kind of shut me down. And I, I, I would love to do life over and actually be more assertive in those classes, asking questions, understanding things right. I didn't know. I have no idea what happened. You know, the, it was an odd experience for me to start to teach because uh, I used to teach at this uh, summer school program for, for gifted high schoolers. So it wasn't, it was something I was doing in graduate school as kind of a summer job. I was never a, a professional teacher, but so these high school age kids would come for the summer session and I started off teaching astronomy. It was great. We were, we were learning lots and lots of astronomy. And at some point I actually deliberately tried to count how many times I called on a boy as opposed to a girl. And I was completely favoring the boys. It, I mean, it was so skewed. It shocked me because they were mainly at the front of the, the class. They, Did they, they all have like the Justin Bieber hair? The well, Justin Bieber hair? This would have been in the uh, the mid 90s. Uh, so maybe, you know. Uh, oh, no. Nah, what were you doing? <laughs> that was when I was in graduate school. But I mean, so, so they were up. They were engaging me. They were up at the front of the classroom. And, and, and you know, even as a female teacher, I, I, I had to really deliberately draw out the girls. They were in the back. They were doing things more in groups. And I had to just very, very, be very careful not to neglect that population. Right. That's interesting. Well, it's, it's fun. There's a little bit of poeticism happening here right now because, um, the last interview I did here was with a guy named Troy Carter, who runs a company called Adam factory. I asked him about why he called this company Adam factory. And he started talking about atoms and you know, he could, he, he was thinking about tiny, but mighty, you know, kind of particles. Um, and during your and I's last conversation, we talked a lot about improv and how you bring like from as from a communication standpoint with NASA is you bring improv comedy into training and workshops. And here we are at the improv. <laughs> um, so uh, the universe is at work. That's uh, uh, but it, that's interesting. So did you I mean, what did you do about, you know, or I don't know. So the thing I was thinking about was unconscious bias. Is that that's how I got there? Um, have you learned, to, and that's something that you deal with every day in terms of how people view scientists and so on and so forth. Um, how do you how do you deal with that? Like when you when you have to confront an individual about that particular kind of issue, right? Like sometimes, it's like you you don't have a choice to but to be very direct about it. And like, how do you level that playing field out? And directly confrontational. It's a hard one because when, when you're aware that somebody's doing an unconscious bias thing on you, you know, it, it doesn't do a whole lot of good to get extremely angry and aggressive about it. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes it has actually come into the, the physical realm where, and, and, and I'm not actually talking about sexual harassment here, but 
I, I often, there were some older um, male colleagues that would kind of treat me like a kid. They would kind of put their arm around me, but almost you know, kind of t- touch the top of my head. I mean, I mean, almost kind of in this protective kid way. Right. And um, they wouldn't do that to the men. I mean, th- there was this sort of this touching that went on with, with the women and not with the men. And, you know, I think for the older guys, you know, touching women in a friendly way was a culturally acceptable thing. Sure. Probably some of the only touch they get. But I've had to oh, sit, a, I've had to sit a couple of them down and just say, you know, think about, am I, are you treating me the same way as my male colleagues? I realize you're not threatening me. You're not actually trying to insult me, but you're, 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 you are in a way demeaning me. You're making me a diminutive, you know, something that's like a little kid. And, um, you know, and I, I feel kind of sad because I, I, I do it. I tried to do it very gently, but, but it makes them, it, it hurts their feelings. And, right. and, and, and that's the risk you take when you, when you call this stuff out as you should, is that then all of a sudden somebody is less comfortable with you. And that was, that can be detrimental to your career too. I was going to say, were you, uh, were you uncomfortable or hesitant about taking that first step? Oh, right? Of course, of course. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I mean, you wonder how's this person going to react to you? Are they going to think that you're a crazy feminist? You know, I mean, there, there's this, this weird stereotype. I don't really know where it comes from that if you raise any objection at all that, you know, you, then, then you want to attack them and, and, you know, bring a lawsuit against them. And, and, and there's this, <laughs> there's, there actually is this sort of medium ground where all you want to do is change the behavior. You don't right. want to, you don't want to punish anyone. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, nobody really likes confrontation. Some people gravitate toward it. Some, you know, somehow the rare one seems to really love it, but I, <laughs> I, I, I am such a, a conflict avoider. Um, so in this idea of communication, whether it's one-on-one, you know, a concept like that, right. You know, I, and we were talking a little bit earlier about the art of pitching, right? Well, so and even in that sense, you're like, say you're going to pitch them a different way to approach you. Um, or you're going to pitch the science of the universe to, you know, the world. Um, what are some of the key principles you've learned over your career about how to, you know, communicate a concept to maybe any audience, right? I think it helps to make them personally comfortable with you. You know, I think it helps to start out. I mean, it, it, it's funny. I mean, it, we were talking a bit about male, female stereotypes, but, you know, the idea of starting with the the small talk, the introduction, you know, the, the, the where you come from, you know, some some jokes, um, th- that's not a, a trivial thing, right? You're establishing a relationship. And I think people don't understand how much energy, you know, you, you have to do to get that to happen, to establish a relationship with an audience or with your professional colleagues. I mean, I'm at uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory all week this week, and my main goal is is small talk, you know, face-to-face with people that I'm on telecons with all the time, talking about their kids, talking about what's going on in their lives, plenty of technical stuff that I'm looking into. But I'm deliberately taking a small talk week at JPL to build those relationships. And then when we're on a telecon a month from now, we, we have a, a better chance of actually getting something done. Right. And um, so the relationship building with an audience is, is not trivial. You, you need to start with who you are and why you're here. And I guess, you know, especially when it comes to pitching things like science, you know, the idea of a disconnect that the, the universe is so distant and separate from you. When, you know, we've talked about this, in fact, mm-hmm. it's, it's nothing could be farther from the truth, right? I mean, your very atoms were made in dead stars. You know, when you look up into the sky, you are looking at your brothers and sisters, right? I mean, you, you know, our, our atoms were made in supernovae that, you know, exploded billions of years ago. And as these things have swept around the galaxy, as all the dust and gas have been gathered up in the galaxy, there's a good chance there's an atom in you right now. And there's an atom in a star and then sky and they come from the same explosion, right? right? That there's no separation. So I think that I, I really try to break down the idea of otherness. You know, th- this is something that you are as involved in as you can possibly be. Um, do you ever do this for like 
normal executives, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Because I, I think you go to like the C-suite at Coca-Cola and it, maybe that goes over their head, right? Or, or, so do, do you ever do it outside of the, you know, NASA and, and JPL? And if so, is it, the, is it the same sort of principles that you present? I guess you know, it's funny. I don't. I don't really understand. I mean, I certainly talk to the public. Um, I, I've, nobody's ever invited me to give an astronomy talk to uh, the Coca Cola executives, but I, but I would. Yeah. Um, it's it's an odd thing being part of this this Hatch Network because you know in this Hatch Network, um, I've been asked to kind of talk about this with people that are very much not scientists. They're you know they're innovators or business people or, right. or entrepreneurs or authors or. Whoever. And just for the sake of the audience, if you guys look at HatchExperience.org, you'll you'll find out. I've talked about Hatch a few times on the show, but. Uh, I won't do it this time. You guys are just look it up. But it, it really does seem that what uh, Hatch is is using me for is to go around and talk about astronomy in in places where that's not the the main topic of discussion. You know, like they they invited me to do the C two festival in Montreal, which unfortunately I don't have time to go to. But they wanted to start it off. You know, the C two you know that's all about business, right? All about business and innovation. They wanted to start out with me doing an astronomy talk, and um, I, so maybe you're onto something there. I mean, maybe I can hire myself out as you know a way to get something kicked off in an innovative and creative way is think about something totally different. It's a hundred. I, I, I couldn't agree with that more. You know, I, I hugely believe in culture shock, right? Because that Coca-Cola executive has heard all the stats, all the data, <laughs> seen all the technology, you know, knows all the players in that space. But, and, but when I go and say, Hey, you ever think about the stars? And you're like, okay. But, and then suddenly it starts to make sense. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's the one thing I, I love about doing this show is that I can speak to people like you and kind of dr- connect these dots. I can talk to Sugar Ray Leonard and we talk about boxing and his Olympic career. And then how does that translate into the entrepreneurial journey or the C-suite journey or whomever, like your creative journey? Um, there, there are these parallels. And I think when you, shock the system with information or stories that they have not heard before. There's a little bit more of a long lasting effect that takes place. So I'll manage you. (laughs) I would would absolutely love that. Yeah. Yeah. And and, you know, I I think actually being a scientist does give you a little more permission to be uh, shocking the system. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to take yourself all that seriously when you understand how small we are compared to the universe and how briefly we're here and, and, and getting all wrapped up in all the false gods of who has the most power or the most fame or the most money. I mean, mean, we're all going to be dead too damn soon for that. So it, it, you know, I, I think that one of the things I love about scientists is they tend to be, you know, rule breakers and, and that makes them hell to manage now that I have to manage them, but I love it. I respect them for it. I respect the fact that they, they don't ask how high when you say jump, you know, right. oh, oh my God, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, what in the, the statement you just made about the universe and we're all only here for a minute of time, all this other stuff doesn't matter. What does significance mean to you? I think everybody has to define that for themselves. I think, you know, for me, um, significance is making anybody's life a little bit more easy, a little bit more joy. I, I, I'm a, I'm a huge, you know, dripping with empathy person. I mean, I, I actually, I have trouble watching television and movies because, you know, if it's a horror movie or if it's violent or if somebody's getting hurt, my stomach just turns. Um, you know, I, I, if I can, if I can add a little profoundness, if I can add a little connection to your life, if I can teach you how beautiful this universe is, uh, to me, that's how I define uh, the significance, you know, sort of it's, it's, it's all in context of the people. Yeah. And, and so I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Um, why is that important? Like if we're, if it's only a short time and I, I get it, it's almost like a domino, right? I touch you, you touch the next person, blah, blah, blah. Like 
why, I don't know why take the time and I'm, I, I agree with you, but why take the time to make someone's day, especially if I'm having a bad day or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like who's making my day better? Like mm-hmm. there, 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 there can be a great deal of cynicism in response to that statement. Well, the answer is there's no why. And um, the the thing that I think I've had to deal with in sort of my existential angsty moments is, you know, you you have to become kind of this gentle nihilist. I mean, yes, nothing matters, right? I mean, you know, all of the wonderful things I do, you know, I'm traveling the world, I'm I'm trying to love people, I'm trying to find a good pair of blue jeans. And, you know, I mean, I mean, everything that I'm doing completely ends when I die, done. You know, it doesn't matter whether I had a beautiful life or a crappy life, done. And, you know, I, I think that after you spend some amount of time when you're 13 years old, crying your eyes out for a few weeks over this, which everyone probably should, then you wake up in the morning the next day and, and you say, well, okay, done. You know, I mean, nothing means anything, but I am experiencing pain and love and joy and wonder. And guess what? This person across the table is here too. And no, it's not about what matters in a cosmic context. I mean, hell no, we don't matter. But the experience, you know, we, we, we should work to minimize each other's suffering. Yeah. We should work to maximize each other's joy. And, and I, I mean, I like to think of it as whatever, whatever I do, like there's a certain domino effect that happens that is invisible to you. So I, for instance, there, there was a guy who was at my house. I had a little, you know, get together and there were a few people there and he's like, Oh, I have this. He was explaining to someone else what he does. And he says, I have a, you know, this fashion business and I've been, you know, doing men's styling and blah, blah, blah. And so he can get you some blue jeans. By the way. <laughs> um, they might fit a little funny. <laughs> men's blue jeans. I might do that. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but he, you know, as he's talking, you know, I kind of walked off and was having another conversation and somebody goes, Oh, well, how'd you get that idea? And he goes, goes Chris and I was I don't remember that conversation yeah. after we talked a little bit like he jogged my memory but it for me it was an inadvertent you know oh what well, have you ever thought about blah 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 and you know and he took that and ran with it and I think there's so many moments that that happens in I mean I manage a, an innovation team at a media like one of the largest media agencies in the world and I always tell them it's like it's not about what we actually get to do Right. It's not about the project that gets done. It's about did we inspire in that moment? The idea might be too crazy or not, you know, might not fit a budget or blah, blah, blah. But there's this effect that somebody will go home and like, that was awesome. And then they will think about that and that will lead them to some some other point. So I, I touche you on the insignificance <laughs> of, you know, the, uh-huh. like. And that, that goes on for generations. Absolutely. And you just got to let it flow. I mean, I mean, and it, and that's completely removed from your ego, right? I mean, things that you never even meant to be a major event in somebody's life end up being a major event. And sometimes you mean to be a major event in someone's life and, and, and the moment goes away and yes. it didn't work. Shout out to my unexpected child. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> but was your child unexpected? Uh, yeah, she was yeah. actually. Um, but I, I, oh, and yeah. it's amazing. Like, you know, it's, and it's, it's, uh, it's been a journey, but the, yeah. but you know, it, it's like one of those, uh, turns in life that, that happen, and you begin to, you get wobbly at first and then you start to, it's like riding a bike, you know, it's like, Oh, Oh, I got it. I, cool. Um, rather than getting a bike, getting the training wheels, learning how you like the, the proper process of learning how to ride a bike. Uh, sorry, Brooklyn. I didn't mean to compare you to a bike. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so a, a couple of things we didn't get a chance to get to last time we talked, um, you know, the show is called innovation crush, right? 
people I'm crushing on, people the world is crushing on, um, people who are crushing it, things that, that are out there that we think are amazing. Uh, what is your current innovation crush? Boy, there's a lot. I mean, so when you, when you work at NASA, I mean, this stuff kind of passes by your eyes all the time. Um, I, I've been looking at some of the new web design that they're doing at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I was looking specifically at a new page coming out about exoplanets. And um, just the, 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 the beauty of the design they're doing and how it's completely responsive to the different platforms. I mean, that was really amazing. What's an exoplanet? Ah, an exoplanet is a planet <laughs> around another star. Uh, so, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, but... Um, so, I mean, right now we know of about 2,000 planets that are going around other stars in the sky. In fact, I mean, statistically, most of the stars you see in the sky have planets around them. And um, we're about to, it's about to get a huge bump up. We're about to go up by about another factor of 1,000. And there are about another 5,000 that we're following up on, you know, just to make sure. We're not quite sure. We, we may have seen something. We're not entirely sure. But uh, so, 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 so the, the web design and the responsiveness I thought was incredible. The other thing I did today was I was trying out an Oculus Rift uh, uh, application to explore an asteroid. So, you know, we have mapped places like Mars and the moon and some of the asteroids to incredible resolution. Um, in the case of the moon, I think we have one mission that, that's gotten, uh, pixels are about 25 centimeters, so you can see, like, you know, every little individual rock on the moon. And, uh, you know, I was uh, this morning I, I had my Oculus Rift on and I was flying around Vesta. And, um, you know, it, it, VR is now getting to the point, and for so long it was just kind of lame, right? It wasn't really worth doing. And it's getting to the point now where I get vertigo flying around this beautiful, big, bright asteroid quickly looking at the craters. And, you know, we actually duck down into a crater. And this is all based on real data, right? Yeah. This is not a, an artistic impression of the, of the asteroid. We've mapped the asteroid. So now you turn that into a VR experience. And, um, you know, I was diving into craters to look at some rock formations. I was like, well, what the hell is that? You know, I, I, so I you never. Can you could choose your own navigation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Experience. Absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so it's all being mapped real time and, right. and, you, and you choose your own navigation. So I spent this morning walking around on Mars and on, uh, on, on the moon and, and Vesta. And tomorrow I'm going to do this demonstration for something called Hollow World, which is, a, is another very, very high quality VR experience that people say is going to blow my mind. So uh, there is a Hollow World Mars uh, exhibition opening, I, I believe, at Kennedy Space Flight Center. But it's, it's going to be a lot of other places, too. This is being uh, uh, driven by, by JPL. And well, VR technology is, is pretty crazy because, you know, um, outside of the visual piece of it, right, there's these 4D experiences that may add as, you know, as another sen sensory mm -hmm. to the to the, the VR experience at South by Southwest this year. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the uh, Samsung has developed these headphones that somehow fuck with your inner ear and give your body the sensation of being pulled slightly left, right, oh. up, down. And they, you know, they put the headphones on me. I wasn't looking at anything. And suddenly I like speaking to vertigo. Like I, I was standing perfectly still, but my body was oh. tricked into. And so then they showed this, um, this racing experience where you get in a race car and you're on this like curvy, you know, uh, racetrack mm -hmm. and every turn you're like your body is just in this it's super trippy wow yeah so um you got to fly i got to like feel like a real race car driver um we'll have to race one <laughs> so um uh you you also uh, there's this acceptability of science and one of the things we talked about just a second ago uh before we started recording was the talk he gave at the uh, griffith park observatory recently 
But can you explain what that event was? And the fact that it was packed and they had to turn people away is pretty cool. But I want you to explain just what the event was and, you know, your your personal reaction to it. Oh, sure. So the first Friday of every month at Griffith Observatory, they do a show called um, All Space Considered. And, uh, of course, the wonderful thing about Griffith is that going into the museum is free. I think they, they sell tickets for shows and stuff. But I think if you just want to go into the museum, it's, you know, L.A. County. And, and then that's a free experience. So... Um, what they do, Laura Danley is sort of the leader of this, and uh, she's she's one of she's the I think she's the head curator of uh, of Griffith, and um, they have a team of four people. So every month there's this kind of nice little talk show format. You know, it, it's a fairly big auditorium, and uh, they they give you a whole update about what the best new discoveries this month were in space and Earth science. And uh, I had to say I was impressed. I mean, they they really nailed it because I, I read all the NASA press releases, so I, I kind of know all of the news for space, and they picked out some ones. I, I think like, they pay you to do that, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's my day job. Yeah, but um, you know, they, they they picked out really really cool stuff because I had actually brought some slides myself. Um, by the way, my talk was about climate change, and yeah. you know, I, I started off by you know trying to show them some cool fun stuff, and then we go to the more depressing stuff because the climate change news. Guess what? It's not good. Um, so, but but everything that that I had wanted to tell them about as kind of an upper, they'd already done. I mean, they 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 they'd seen all the cool stuff. And yeah, so so many people line up for this that there are always, I guess, every month there are people that are turned away. It is standing room only. And I think they have a little area for an overflow audience. But if you want to go to All Space Considered, I, I believe it's at 7.30 p.m. on Fridays at Griffith. It's free and get there early. I'd like to think that that's partially your fault. I mean, <laughs> you know, as, well, seriously, like as as far as like being the director of communications at NASA and Convert, like converting more people to be interested in, you know, cosmic science. Right. Um, and to have that line around the corner, which I would imagine 25 years ago is probably a very particular group yeah. of people in line. <laughs> it, it, I think it really has opened up and I'm so happy about that. There actually, there were a lot of people that were new uh, this week because I think I, I put it out through my social media channels. And so people that wouldn't have normally come, there were people who'd come like, Oh, I came all the way from San Diego and can you autograph my poster? And I mean, it was just, it's always lovely when that happens. So I, I think. What was, it, what was it a poster of? Oh, interestingly enough, we were talking about exoplanets. And one of the things that NASA has done, which I think is just lovely is that they've hired an incredible artist. His name is Dan Goods. He does a lot of interesting art, but he's actually made, like travel bureau posters for different exoplanets. I mean, these are real exoplanets that we know about. I love uh, Dan. He's, he's been on oh, the show. Oh, you know Dan. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Okay, so these are Dan Good's exoplanet travel posters. Yes. And uh, I love these. Like, you know, for example, there's one exoplanet, which is what we call a rogue planet, meaning it was thrown out of its solar system and it doesn't orbit any star. It's just it's just wandering around in between the, the, the stars. So there wouldn't be any sunlight on this planet. So the poster he made, he was like, okay, well, how would I get people to go to a planet where it's always dark? And he went, aha, the planet where the nightlife never ends. And he's got these people in, in evening wear and spacesuits and they're all partying all night, you know? So, you know, I mean, they're... It's a way to really break down the formality and the intimidation factor of the science. Is right. yeah, an exoplanet's a place you could travel to. Yeah, book a trip. Uh, I, I love that. Um, uh, one, one more moment here. Uh, Just one more. I mean, we can keep we can keep going. <laughs> you know, if you want to ask me questions, that's fine too. Um, I've answered weird ones before, but I want you to complete this phrase for me. Innovation to me is. Pushing the boundaries simply for the sake of pushing the boundaries. I like that. I always like 
you know, the weird art that involves poo or something. I mean, even if I think that it's, <laughs> even, if, even if I think that the art itself is ugly and not very interesting, people need to push, right? People need to, to go out and do the somewhat shocking things, the things that may or may not work. And I think there is intrinsic value just in that. And I, I think that that's kind of key for an innovative frame of mind that you, you, you can't be afraid of the failure. Um, well, of course, we're all afraid of failure, but, you know, I think society as a whole should always protect some little subset of itself to, to do, you know, bloody stupid things and, and just, just push for the sake of pushing shock for the sake of shocking. I like that. Yeah, no, I, I, we just talked about it a second ago, like the idea of like shocking, even on a, on a level like that, or like you said, poo art or (laughs) (laughs) whatever. There's a, a Lady Gaga, I think last year, South by Southwest had a, um, uh, an artist on stage who was a vomit artist. There you go. And so she would like swallow different color food coloring or whatever, and then throw it up on a canvas. And wow. she threw up on uh, Lady Gaga. So, you know, I mean, so, so not, not something I particularly enjoy, <laughs> but the thing is, seriously, I, I, know, just, I appreciate it. Right. Yeah, it's not, I, I, I gotta say, I kind of respect that. I mean, it, I, 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 I think that we need at least some of us to, to just be as crazy as we can possibly be. Yeah, no. And, and that's, yeah, you're right. I mean, so there's something that comes top of mind for me um, because I have an upcoming interview with the guys who produced the uh, Maplethorpe documentary. And, you know, I wasn't. Yeah, he, into, he pushed some boundaries. He, he definitely he pushed a lot of things. But I <laughs> I did not know who like when the studio was like, hey, this is an opportunity. I was like, well, OK, let me look it up. Still was like, OK, cool. I pre- like I, I get it. Um, watched the documentary recently and I was like, oh, my God. Like it was just and the one my one takeaway from that was it was using shock in a sense where we're not going anywhere and this is who, who we are and how we live, deal with it. And I'm going to put it in your face in a way that's very stark. You know, at, at one point his, uh, his brother goes like, Oh, you think dad'll like that one? You know, <laughs> like, And it is like, you, you, you're absolutely right. You'd need people to like kick down that door to that world that, you know, that is, is essentially reserved for a, a subset or, you know, I think this idea of shock becomes a lot less threatening. And I I think actually one of the real roots of scientific basis for tolerance, seriously, you know, you've probably heard there's something called game theory, right? I mean, game theory is a, uh, a branch of mathematics, which looks for the best outcomes from multiple different possibilities. And, you know, it's one of these things where, um, I, I used to be a little more close-minded in the sense that I thought, okay, you know, I'm a kind of an aggressive, uh, out there pushing person. That's the, the best type of person to be a scientist. And instead, when you do the math, you realize if they're actually, this is a, this is a real mathematical, these are equations. If there's a, a diversity of inputs, you know, some are better, some are worse, but, but, but it's, that's actually better. Lots of diversity of inputs is better than one single path. You can actually show you get better results for the whole group, right. including the aggressive people. And you need to think of humanity as some kind of a super organism using game theory, right? Some of us need to be at home raising children. And some of us need to be, you know, monks in a cloister. And some of us need to be business people. And some of us need to be scientists and engineers. And some of us need to be making poo art because it, it, it actually, seriously, we need, we need every segment of that because all of those diverse inputs, you know, I don't judge someone who's staying at home and, and raising their children. We freaking need that, right? We, we need that person just as much as we need Elon Musk. 
And our culture, our, our humanity as a whole is not going to work until we value every diverse input that you have. And I mean, obviously I'm talking about harm none. I mean, if, you, if there are psychopaths killing people, you got to stop that. But, you know, the, the harm none going all the way out to shock yourself, right? Homoerotic art, you know, whatever Maplethorpe, you know, did. We need that just as much as we need the conservatism. And, and the conservatism probably has its place too sure. in the superorganism. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's uh, you know, when people ask me like, oh, what's the most common thing that comes up on your show? It is that exact point. It is innovation stems from diverse perspectives, right? And, you know, even though all those people that you mentioned, the house, you know, the the housewife and the, and the Elon Musk, like that's what Hatch does, right? In a sense, it brings all these different perspectives together. And then all of a sudden you're like, have you ever thought about it from this perspective? And then you've looked at the issue or the problem or the opportunity from so many different perspectives and you find this really great blend of outcome. Uh, and you, you need that. Otherwise it's going to be like you were getting that earlier. It's like all white men making this decision from their tax bracket and life experience perspective. And that is not what the world is. Right? And I mean, we're going to have a better space program when it is, it is more African-American, more Latino, more women, you know, more Asian. Um, it's not that our space program is going to be worse. I think that that's something that, you know, unfortunately you need to really push back at people. Because I don't know when black people move into space, it's going to be some, <laughs> be some stuff going down. I hope so. <laughs> we, we need some stuff going down. Like, I mean, for example, we didn't have decent coffee on the space station until the Italians went up there. I mean, seriously. So Samantha, really? yeah, Samantha Cristoforetti actually debuted the first sort of, you know, espresso maker. I mean, it, it, you have to keep everything contained and it still uses freeze-dried coffee and all. But but now you can actually have a decent cup of coffee on the space station because the Italians refuse to live anywhere where you, you can't get a, a decent cup of joe. Those Italians. <laughs> I, maybe if they had pizza up there. Um, they, they actually, we're working on 3D printing pizza. I kid you not. Um, because if you if you, we ever take people to Mars, um, you know, we're not going to be able to bring a lot of fresh ingredients and nobody wants to eat the same damn powdered thing every day. So what if you have different powders, you know, tomato sauce powder, you know, a flour powder, you know, powdered basil, but you combine them in different ways every day. You know, one day you get a pizza, one day you get spaghetti bolognese, one day you get a taco. At least there's a little bit of variety to help the psychology of the people that are on a long trip. It sounds like an amazing Monsanto project. <laughs> 3D printed. <laughs> 3D printed pizza. That's our tech challenge for you. Exactly. Um, uh, do you have any questions for me? How about that? Uh, which I reserved that question for a rare group of people. And I feel like it, I'm almost entering dangerous territory because I know you're very brilliant. So, um, oh, screw but that. maybe, maybe don't. Well, okay. So I mean, you're experiencing a classic <laughs> and, 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 core part of humanity that I'm never going to experience. I, I decided not to have children. So, you know, when we talked about the super organism of humanity, um, I, I love kids. I, I, I first I, thought you said super orgasm of humanity, which <laughs> that sounds good too. They I'm all, all, did it all, all for that. We all had an orgasm all at the same time at once. Well, that's probably really good for us. Actually. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so, you know, I, I never wanted children. And one of the things that I've done recently, I've done a lot of podcasting and interviewing for, um, parenthood sites and motherhood sites about the diversity of possibilities. And the fact that there are, you know, healthy people that actually love kids just fine, but I never want any of my own. You're going through a huge change in your life right now. And, it, and it's, it's a central core of what being a human means. What are some of the things going on in your head? What, what, what's more challenging than you thought? What's easier than you thought? Um, worry. Yeah. You were you like, you worry a lot more. At least I do. 
Yeah. I think it's the, the, and I like that I get to do this show because I get to ask people a lot of nosy questions. What kind of kid were you? What were your parents like? And, but also like how that breeds an innovator, you know, that, that whole thread of life experience. So, you know, we talked about Brent Bushnell and, you know, I interviewed Brent and Nolan at the same time. And, you know, so it was a great, you know, like, so then, then what'd you do? Um, but you would like, I worry all the, like uh, every trip up I, like part of me worries is like is this going to be the lasting trait you know that, because you don't know how kids will turn out no matter what you put into them or not um but that all that worry comes from a, a really good place right because you you want the best and then um and then you were right, i worry about balance right you know um there's a quote that never escapes me it is uh sometimes we try so hard to give our kids what we didn't have that we forget to give them what we did have mm. and so i'm like what would my mom have done and even though it's like my mom's you know like you, you any kid doesn't have or any adult doesn't like doesn't have all the best memories of their parents so most times you go like you remember like oh that time i got in trouble or i wish this would have happened and my mom never let me and my dad didn't and it's like that also helped you know you or shaped who you are so um i think it's that i think the speed of which technology is is growing especially access to information there was actually an interesting thing on the cover of time magazine recently and it was like i didn't read the story but it was like how these teens are fighting against porn on the internet you Mm -hmm. know because there's been a lot of just change in sexuality um, and what that means and when it starts and all the stuff and, um, and just the access to the wrong message on what intimacy is, um, and not enough focus on what the right message of it is. So like women like Cindy Gallup, who has a platform called make love, not porn. And, you know, it is, uh, it's kind of like trying to take that back, you know, yeah. um, Anyway, that was a very long winded answer of uh, the worry. Yeah. Yeah. The the worry both about like, like her hurting herself or you hurting yourself because you got to be there for her now. Yeah. Um, Worry about what? Uh, How they will turn out. Like what? Worry about how they'll turn out. Yeah. Yeah, Like what's, you know, what will 30 year old Brooklyn (laughs) or Nico be like? Right. Um, It's it's, and and because you don't want to steer too much. Yeah. And you don't want to not steer at all. And like. How much is is enough? And like, how much pressure is enough pressure? And, you know, um, and, and just how perfect sometimes an imperfect parent can be. I mean, my, my, my mother is, is wonderful. And, uh, I've actually had her on my podcast because I mean, she, she was a single mom. She was just working her butt off. I mean, she didn't have a whole lot of time for these kids, you know, definitely latchkey kids, but I mean, she, she loved the hell out of us. I mean, whenever she had 10 minutes to spare, she was very strict, but she had no idea about science. I mean, to this day, I cannot get her to name the planets or tell me, you know, what, what causes the phases of the moon. And I've tried, um, but you know, she, she had no interest in what I was interested in. And I was interested in this from a very small uh, child's age. I think about four or five was when I got really bit by the astronomy bug, but you know, she never, she never judged my interest in something. She, she wanted me to be interested in something. And you know, we didn't have money for college. I got scholarships. I worked my way through college. You know, I mean, I mean, everything that I have now, I did have to work for. And I think that's a huge gift because everyone's afraid that our life is about to fall apart around our ears at any moment. You know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fall flat on my face at work. I'm going to get a terrible review and I'm going to completely stuff up this, this project. But when, when you've actually had the uh, experience of having to build it up yourself, you think, well, I, I could do it again. 
Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's not something that's alien. And, and just the fact that I had this, just the love, right? The love and, you know, whatever you're interested in is, I'm down with it. You know, I don't, I don't understand it, but I'm, I'm cool with whatever you want to do. Um, what a you know, tremendous gift of freedom. Yeah. No, it, it's, I mean, there's a lot that goes in there, even in those decisions, like, okay, that's weird, but tell me more about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, showing interest in the things that they're interested in. Like my son loves dinosaurs and sea creatures. I mean, I bought home a book this thick. You guys can't see what I'm saying, but 25 cents at the library of like ocean animals. And he could name probably 40% of them that are in there. Like, and the real name, not like, so like, Oh, that's SpongeBob. Like, no, it's not It's like, it's a starfish or that is a tiger shark or that is a baby beluga. Like he just he knows all these, he's three years old. So, um, you know, it's, I, do I care about the ocean? I mean, it's interesting, but I love watching him explore yeah. that. Right. Um, or when my daughter shows me ballet, I had like, I coached a swim team was one of my first odd jobs when I moved to California. And, um, and so like I was able to coach kids through that kind of stuff and the things that I, that I know and like make them better athletes and better people. Ballet is a, uh, so foreign to me. So I'm like, it's a, it's a what thing? And I, I almost sound like my mom sounded when I was some, my mom grew up in the projects of Detroit. Um, and so, but then put herself to school, like at, in their thirties and there's a whole long story there, but you know, started to expose me to other stuff. Um, and she would be like, what's that stroke called again? And here I am like the captain of the swim team, like in, in high school, <laughs> it's like, all right. And, and kind of like your, the point you're making is, um, around like your parents don't necessarily have to understand exactly what it is you do. Right. Um, but I think they can recognize whether or not you're happy. And that probably at the end of every day is like, how can I make you happier in this moment? Another thing that interested me that you said, you talked about this group called make love, not porn. And I need to look into this because I, um, I, I've always been very interested in sex and, you know, I, I, I have a question about whether things are changing with regard to how young people interact with each other. Um, I always, I thought it was hilarious that every couple of years, time magazine has some article on the front, which is basically saying, teenagers have sex, you know, the world is coming to an end. You know, right. I mean, they, they, they do this, there's sort of a cycle to it. And, you know, I, sometimes in the, uh, the editorial comments the week after, you know, there was a, this little old lady saying, does anybody remember the 1920s? I'm sorry. You know, I mean, <laughs> what, what, what do you think we were doing in the 1920s? Right. You know, teenagers were having sex. You know, there hasn't been a big change, but something that's really been a, a problem in my life recently is, um, people seem to be very, very much delineating sex into something that you only do with people you don't know very well. And it's not open to people who you actually like and are friendly with, you know? So for example, the life of a model, um, he has Tinder and he has almost a different woman every night. Um, and, uh, he doesn't want to know their names. He doesn't ever want to see them again. And he has even admitted that it feels real good to exercise power on these people. You know, it's almost kind of like a revenge for all the, the people that these, this is what he has said, you know, revenge for women that rejected him in the past. And he's like, Oh, they have a good time. You know, I'm, I'm polite, you know, and we, you know, we, we, we hook up and then they're gone. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm his like friend. I, I, we, we're cool. We're buds. You know, right. we're down. I'm, I'm, I'm also hard up. And I'm like, can I get a little of that? And he's like, absolutely not. He's like, no, no way. It's like, okay, if you're not into me, I get it. I, you're not, I'm not, I'm not attractive. Like you're attractive. I totally, and he, and he actually freaked out at me and said, you know, that's your own insecurity talking. That's not what it is. He says, I can't have sex with people that I like. 
How old is he? Uh, he's 37. There's, well, that's he, he's not, he's not a, that's just him. Yeah. That's different. <laughs> but, 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 you know, again, like I, I, I get a, I get a, uh, a cheat code by doing the show. I, you know, I spoke to a woman who is the number one trends forecaster in the world. Right. Um, uh, and we got on this topic of 12, 13, 14 year olds. And it's not so much about strangers, but it is about like, I, I would rather have sex with a friend. Right. And so there's a, there's a, it's a weird dynamic there because on one hand it's very casual. Isn't it? There's nothing, there's yeah. no love involved. And again, teens Look, for generations. I've have had, had some wonderfully thing. tender one night stands. I'm sorry. You know, a, chance, <laughs> a chance to connect with someone right. that I, I never actually got their name, but, but it, it was, it was, it was actually an, kind of a moment of sharing. <laughs> yes. Is this going to get you in trouble for, uh, with uh, just, <laughs> 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 no, but there, you know, there's this whole, um, you know, disconnect from jump. I think, you know, and I think the, the missing pieces for parents is that I don't know always what people are accessing and it's easier to access. When I used to watch porn, I, I had to find it and like physically find it in the house. Like, Oh, what is this? Accidentally went too far on a VCR tape. <laughs> This third movie ended because remember you could like you could set it on a different setting yeah, and like yeah. and I was like fuzz 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 and then all of a sudden like oh there's naked people here <laughs> you know I'm in middle school and I'm like oh and like what's on this tape then and what's on this tape <laughs> <laughs> but that was in in those three four tapes yeah it's it, hard to get at though right and uh, so it didn't run the risk of tainting me as much as. A good friend of mine whose kid had to go in, whose 11 year old daughter had to go into therapy because she discovered porn and just went down this rabbit hole of like dark sex, um, like Satanism and ended up following some rock band that was, I forget the name of it. It was like Dark Bride or something like that. And that rap, like that wasn't accessible, you know, when I was a kid. So I think the, 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 opportunity or the the likelihood of going down a unhealthy path is far more increased. Mm. So, um, but I'm glad to know about your Tinder account. (laughs) 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 My daughter will not listen to this episode of the show. Um, she listened to part one, which is, (laughs) it's just fine. (laughs) I actually don't have a Tinder account. (laughs) Yeah. I've I've looked through the app a couple times, but I've never actually managed to register myself. Well, because I, you know, because I play in this space that I play in, especially like it's part of the culture now. Yeah. My day to day work. And I'm like, Oh, I like, I would like to understand how this works. And I think I, 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 sure. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. That's what it was. Both of us are like, (laughs) both of us are paddling a little too hard here. (laughs) Exactly. Your name's not Joe. Uh, shut up. <laughs> well, thank you. You're welcome. For for you know, this is two countries we've done this in. Yeah, this is pretty absolutely. Amazing. Yeah, Panama was awfully cool, and L A. L A. has a little bit of a Panama vibe. They're, they're somewhat similar. Yeah, almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Linen pants and cigars and <laughs> well, there's people smoking cigars right across. Yeah, right exactly. Yeah. That's where we should go next. Um, hey, everybody! This has been the first ever uh, part two of an interview on Innovation Crush. And uh, please tune in, share it, like us, uh, follow me on Twitter. How do people follow you, and where did they where did they find the 
uh, the Michelle-ness. Well, I, I do have a Twitter account, uh, you know, ML Thaler, and uh, I have a fan pa- Facebook page, Michelle Thaler, and uh, I'm on uh, Orbital Path, which is a podcast on public radio, and uh, see me on How the Universe Works and lots of other sort of documentary type science things. Will you, will you post this on one of your social channels? If you'd like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I will too. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in, and we will talk to you next time. Bye.